You're watching The Luke Bryan Show. Um, Luke, you've been involved in uh, disability and you've done uh, a number of decisions. And most recently, you have a court of appeal decision called Gascoigne. Yeah. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about de uh, disability law generally and a little bit about that decision and, and the significance of the test that came out of that decision mm -hmm. and what it's done to disability law? Yeah, so in terms of um, disability law, the, the law is essentially, you know, people uh, are, if they have a disease or an illness and end up on dis long-term disability, often through their employer, um, sometimes those disability providers will terminate the uh, contract and stop paying them uh, for whatever reason. And, and they, you know, a lot of insurers do it and often the reason for termination is not valid. And, and often that person almost always is in a very vulnerable position. They are so sick, they need to be on disability they're not collecting a paycheck and then their disability is cut off and so they tend to be in a very very dif difficult position uh, financially and just providing the basic data need needs and in in the case that we ran to trial um, it was the you know my our client had uh, you know kids at home and and really was not able or was really struggling to provide even food for for her kids and shelter so that that was you know very compelling in terms of the the background facts but um, so the uh, disability provider cut her off and said essentially that you know her injury was not was not something that should she should be disabled from and she should be able to return to the workforce and uh, she was not able to and we were able to prove that at trial and and have her disability benefits reinstated uh, which is one of the the kind of ties into the what we tried to do at the court of appeal which was um, change the law so the law historically about in disability context has been uh, if you go to trial they they essentially give you your back pay up to the date of trial and then they put you back on disability and uh, with the provider and and it's an odd uh, way to approach uh, especially when the provider is the one that cut you off exactly and didn't have any legitimate reason to do it yeah and, and it's especially when it's been done in bad faith and and so in in there's no other contractual context that I'm aware of that 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 happens where someone breaches the contract with bad faith and the court says okay go back to being in that contract together and, and there's then there's no reason the very next day the insurance provider can't just breach cut again. them off again and exactly. breach them the same as that they had before and, and so I saw that as yeah, a hole in law and something that's quite unjust and and so did go to the so was successful on the basic argument of getting her reinstated at trial and then the i wanted to change the law on on the area about the future of disability payments and and suggested to the court of appeal that it should be a payout of some sort rather than um rather than putting them back on claim and so historically the it was never a possibility there was no mechanism for the court to allow them to pay out the future of the claim they would just put them back on and uh in your case, you actually managed to get a test put in uh, place for the first time since the Magna Carta, <laughs> where they where they where they managed to set up the criteria to say if you meet these criteria, then we'll pay out the future of the claim. Yeah, and then that has not happened in Canada, at least that I'm aware of, where um, where that has occurred. So there is a, I think now, a legal test that can be relied on to uh, potentially um, pay out uh, the entirety of the claim, and and still that's not necessarily an easy road to go down, but it is it is something that I think is well just really unjust the way the law was and and that ties into you know i think a, our passion for doing law is 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 really is is protecting people and and making sure they're taken care of when they're when they're vulnerable yeah 
So in terms of like a disability case, you know, if you are, if a person is terminated on their disability, uh, from their disability contract, you know, the big thing is to call a lawyer. We do a lot of these, this work on contingency. So it's, you're not going to be paying out of pocket and, and it's, it's something that we can give you advice on and, you know, consultation is free. So it's, you know, you pick up the phone, we'll, we'll talk to you and tell you what your rights are and whether you have a case to advance or not. And, uh, why do you take these cases on contingency? What's the, what's the sort of driving force uh, behind the contingency and, and why you don't uh, demand a large retainer and charge them hourly? Yeah, contingency is, um, you know, the, in our society, we have an issue with access to justice and, and it, justice is expensive. And it's some, you know, there's some people that scholars that write, you know, justice is only for the wealthy. Um, legal scholars are, are writing about that and there is some truth to that. But contingency agreements are a way to, to, to flip that. So it is, you know, there's a payment out of the total settlement as opposed to, you know, traditional uh, retainer and hourly billing. So, which is, you know, often creates uh, just a, an access to justice issue because people can't pay that, that retainer or the, or the hourly fees. So it is something that we do a, a lot of work on contingency and it's something that uh, gives people that access to justice. Yeah, because in the case that you were talking about in the gas coin case, I mean, you'd said that uh, obviously they were cut off and that was their only means of money. They're not working. Uh, exactly. Their only means yeah. of money was the was the insurance provider and the insurance provider stopped paying them. So they, they, they have no money. And so without this type of agreement, uh, there wouldn't be any real basis to, to access justice. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so one of the areas that you practice a lot in is uh, employment law. And, um, and so maybe... Tell us a bit about employment law and, and you know, maybe a bit about your why and then some of the technical aspects of employment law. So employment law spans all matters of employment. So a typical situation is uh, when an employer uh, hires an employee, right? And so that creates a, a contract. Often contracts are written down, but, but sometimes they're, they're inferred. Um, if you go working for somebody and they say they're going to pay you $20 an hour and you're working Monday to Friday and you don't have a piece of paper saying that, you still have a contract uh, and, the, and the terms are set out uh, by the uh, sort of agreement by the parties that's carrying on. And so what happens? is while you're an employee you have you have rights there's things that an employer is allowed to do and things that they're not allowed to do and um, often what employment law and I think the vast majority of why lawyers get involved is people are terminated without uh, without cause and without proper severance and so um, when somebody is uh, fired um, there's essentially three stages of uh, severance you can get. One is uh, statutory, which is the employment standards, uh, and that's roughly one week per year and caps out around eight weeks. And then um, that's, that's we call it the floor, not the ceiling. So that's the least amount you can get and no contract or agreement can deprive you of those minimums. And then there's contractual severance. And so contractual severance has to be at least employment standards minimum. So it can't be less than that, uh, but it can certainly be more than that uh, or the same uh, as that uh, and can limit you to uh, the employment standards minimums. And then and then there's the common law severance. So the common law is what the jurisprudence has come forward and they've uh, developed a, a, a list of factors called the Bardell factors. And uh, when you assess those factors, uh, they, they kind of come to a different number and generally um, it is substantially higher than the employment standards amounts and so if there's no contract limiting your severance uh, and you've been terminated without cause you generally have uh, a right to receive a substantial amount of uh, money or substantially more than what the employment standards are and that's why lawyers get involved um, and really the, the the reason that we do it is to again help the little guy I mean it's a situation where um, 
people are left without money. They have they have no job. They uh, generally don't have a lot of recourse. Um, sometimes the employer will say that they've quit or or that they um, were were terminated for just cause. And and in those situations, um, sometimes you uh, certainly if you quit or if the employer says you quit, you won't have access to employment insurance or EI, and uh, people don't have uh, don't have money or they haven't been working long enough or whatever. And so you have situation where uh, somebody's trying to look for work but can't find it, and they've got a mouths to feed and a family and uh, you know they just don't have uh, don't have any money to pay for a lawyer and and have that access to justice and so that's something that we where we step in and say hey we can help you with this and get you what you're entitled to and often employers will uh, give a letter when they terminate to the employee and it'll say hey here's our severance offer and you need to respond in three days or five days or whatever and if you don't respond you know your claim's gone or something like that and they put this pressure on is that is that real or, or tell us a bit about that yeah so the deadlines are real I mean they can they can revoke it after that but the reality is that you've got two years from the time of termination to commence a claim so if you're not happy with the severance package and and you don't think it's enough or you don't have enough time to review it there's very little risk in not accepting the offer because mm-hmm. you can always just bring a claim for what you're actually entitled to um, and and generally speaking employers are offering that amount of money because they're they, they want to button this up and get you to sign some sort of release it's generally in exchange for for you signing a document saying that you're not going to sue them uh, and and so um, they're, they're generally quite willing to put that back on the table if, uh, if it ends up being a fair offer. Um, but yeah, so I'd say, yeah, there can be some risk, but the reality is that it's negligible and you have two years to bring a claim forward. Okay. And uh, there are some different limitation periods for human rights claims. or Yeah, for sure. Well. Definitely. Definitely. Um, yeah. So human rights is, is one year. Um, and so that's a situation where somebody discriminates against you uh, on the basis of a protected ground, usually uh, race, family, um, gender, uh, those types of things. Disability. Disability. Absolutely. Yeah. So if, um, you know, you're not able to do your job because you're, you're, you're injured on the, on the work site or something and they terminate you, it can definitely raise a human rights issue or discrimination issue. And that's, that's separate from the severance or the, the wrongful dismissal claim. And a lot of times the employers will say you're being terminated for cause. I mean, is cause hard to make it like, what is cause and is it hard to make out uh, for the employer? Yeah. Generally speaking, cause is, um, very difficult to make out. Um, so for cause versus, there's only two ways anyone can be terminated, right? There's for cause and, and without cause, right? So either they have just cause to terminate you, meaning that you've done something uh, of a substantial nature that warrants immediate termination without any severance or, or any compensation. And then there's without cause, meaning that uh, no employer is required to stay in a relationship with an employee that, that for whatever reason, I mean, whether they're downsizing or, or you know, they're not working hard enough or whatever, but just because an employee is a bad employee doesn't mean that uh, it's just cause for termination generally, right? So um, so that's the without cause situation, in which case you're entitled to, to severance. But cause to establish cause, um, you know, there's, it's, it's really difficult. There's um, a case came out from the Supreme Court of Canada called McKinley and it talked about progressive discipline. So um, in order to terminate somebody for cause, you generally need to have uh, a bunch of progressive steps. So if they're late, you need to give them a warning and then, uh, you know, uh, kind of uh, give them another warning and it's another like a warning. baseball three strikes. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you don't need three strikes, but okay. I mean, that's, that's a, sometimes you need more than three strikes, yeah. but uh, in baseball, certainly it's only three strikes. 
strikes, but yeah. uh, it depends on, on, on what's happening, right? Um, and some, some things are so severe that they do warrant immediate termination. And so, um, and often those are set out in your contract. So, you know, if you're a heavy duty operator of machine and you're intoxicated on the workplace, you know, that could be grounds for immediate termination. Or, um, you know, if you, if you go in and steal a bunch of money from the safe, that can be grounds for immediate termination. But then there's some cases out there where people have stolen money and uh, it hasn't been grounds for termination. So, you know, it, it's very difficult to make out just cause. And so um, anytime your employer tells you that they're terminating you for cause, uh, you, you should at least consult a lawyer for yeah. sure and see whether or not they, they had substantial grounds to do that or not. Luke, one of the areas that you practice in is commercial litigation. Why don't you talk a little bit about commercial litigation generally and what that entails? Yeah, so I mean, it's an area both you and I practice in, and it's uh, typically a commercial dispute involves often business people fighting about what's happened in the business. So often you're having a contractual dispute and that can be a shareholder dispute. It can be any type of fight. It can be about the purchase or sale of a business. It can be, um, I mean, you know, property disputes. There's a lot of those that we, we do deal with. So, uh, well, and often, you know, I'll talk about a case I did, uh, a commercial dispute, um, was, uh, this went to trial. It was, uh, the purchase of a blueberry farm, uh, and my clients had purchased a blueberry farm and the contract said, there was a specific variety of blueberries and it was, I think, 40 or 50 acres of the farm. And, and this specific variety was important because it produced the, the best crop and it, and it was tied specifically to the purchase price because of the value of the crop and it was expected. And so... Some blueberries are worth more than other blueberries. <laughs> absolutely. Not, not all blueberries are created equal. <laughs> they are not all the same. And so um, so we sued on the contract and, and the difficulty with the contract is they hadn't put the variety of blueberries. They just said a blueberry farm. And so we had to sue in fraud, um, which, well, we sued in contract and in fraud. And so um, it ended up, I think, 15 acres of the 50 acres were a different variety that was not nearly as as, as profitable in terms of the crop. And, and um, so we were able to establish a trial that the, the, the vendor who's selling the property had committed fraud by... Uh, describing the variety of blueberries and, and lying about it to our client. And, and so we were successful in obtaining a judgment for our client, uh, for the, for the difference in values of those two uh, types of blueberry. Um, so yeah, that's an, an example of a commercial dispute and, and, but they come in all types of varieties and sizes and, and, you know, you have multi-million dollar disputes, you have $20,000 disputes. And, and so it's, you know, commercial litigation is, is, tough on smaller disputes, but we can still guide people through those in the background or, you know, explain how to go through small claims court or, or any of those types of things. I mean, so, I mean, you've done a, like a, quite a large number of commercial disputes as well. Uh, talk, talk a bit about your experience in the area. Yeah. So, I mean, at its broadest sense, I mean, commercial disputes are any, any dispute between two commercial entities, right? And so uh, it can, it can go from uh, shares, uh, values of shares, uh, buying out uh, partners to purchasing land and land falling apart, uh, or, or the deals um, that the, that the commercial entities strike between each other. Um, yeah, most of the disputes that I deal with are uh, generally land land purchases that have that have gone uh, awry, uh, shareholder disputes, um, and yeah, mostly contracts, uh, contracts uh, and debts and, and building. Right, so often uh, one commercial ent entity will hire another commercial entity to do some work, and uh, you know they're they're not happy with the work, or or they are happy with the work, but they're just refusing to pay, and yeah. you know those are situations that 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 arise in the commercial uh, landscape and. 
and are quite common. Um, the value of those debts can be <clears throat> quite small, but they can also be quite large. And so, you know, often often they're hundreds of thousands of dollars, which certainly warrant getting a getting a lawyer involved. And even on the lower end, something that we do is, you know, we'll do a we'll do a consultation and and we'll guide you through that process and try and keep it economical and proportionate and and deal with deal with the matter ultimately our goal is to try and help people uh, and to, to create value. So Luke, if somebody's involved in, in a slip and fall, uh, what steps should they take uh, at that point? So from the time that they fall uh, onwards. Yeah, and, and so it's tough because often people, you get hurt and sometimes people hit their head or, you know, uh, they, or they're embarrassed and they don't want to, you know, they don't want to leave the area. But the important thing to do is preserve the evidence. So take a picture, take a picture of whatever you fell on. That's the or most. Somebody else take a picture. Yeah, or, some, or, or find a witness and get their name and phone number, someone who saw it and just say, hey, uh, can I just get your name, phone number? And, um, and that's... That's, that's really important to preserve that evidence because as the plaintiff in a slip and fall, you have to prove your case. It's your burden of proof, they call it in law. So what that means is if you don't meet your burden, it could have happened, but you haven't proven it, uh, you lose. And so there's two key components to a slip and fall case that you have to prove. One, that there was a hazard and that hazard was unreasonable. And then two, that that hazard actually contributed to you falling. So you could fall beside a hazard and it has nothing to do with it. You have to prove those two steps, both that there was a hazard that was not safe, unreasonable. They should have maintained their premises better. And secondly, that that hazard was the cause of your fall. Sometimes people just fall. And so it's those two pieces that are critical to prove, um, you know, your footwear and then is important. But then the kind of the next big piece is to make sure you go to the doctor and, and see a health professional and talk about your injuries. And that creates a record. Uh, on the injury side of what's occurred and that record is absolutely critical to us in terms of I often talk to clients about those the records are the ammunition we need as lawyers to fight their case and if I have no records I have a gun with no bullets in it and and so it's like created you know giving us those bullets so we can fight for you uh, without those bullets we, we we have nothing we have an empty gun and we can't there's nothing to shoot at right so it's it's that evidence that's so so critical in terms of um, uh, you know uh, get building a successful slip and fall case. And then uh, how do they go about getting in contact with a lawyer or, or how do you know whether they should get a lawyer or not get a lawyer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're injured and and you've fallen, definitely we do free consultations for people in slip and falls. We do most of these cases on contingency, which means that you don't pay until the end and we only pay a percentage of what we uh, we obtain for you. And so that, that really is, a, in a sense, uh, we take on a substantial part of the risk in terms of advancing the slip and fall because if we don't accomplish uh, result for you, uh, we don't get paid. And so that is, and I mean, for us, we've done a lot of these, uh, probably done hundreds of slip and falls and we've seen every fact pattern imaginable. And, and the other part, a big part of what we do is we do use experts. Um, and then we have a very, very, an excellent engineer who helps us a lot on these types of cases. And, you know, if it's warranted, uh, he'll review the situation, write a report, and that can help a lot in terms of proving the case and, and, um, getting a good outcome for the client. So one of the areas that you uh, do a lot of and, and was actually one of your, your first trial and, and Brian won his first trial and I, I told him, I remember I was like, you know, he got reported in the national media and was being interviewed on the radio and on TV and I was like, Brian, you, sh you should just quit law now. You've, you've hit the high mark. <laughs> you should have taken that advice. <laughs> your, uh, your first case went to national news and it, well, it was a defamation case and so it's an area that you've done a few cases in and, and had quite a bit of success and, and that Pritchard case was really interesting because it made new law 
in, in the area of uh, internet defamation specifically in such a burgeoning area because of all the changes to social media. And, and, and why don't you talk a bit about that case and defamation generally? So defamation generally um, is really anytime somebody says something bad about you uh, that's not true ends up being some form of defamation, and that's quite generalized. I mean, there's a lot of steps. I think defamation is probably the most complicated tort with <clears throat> the most amount of uh, you know reverse onuses and, and things bouncing back and forth. But but I mean, the reality is that there's two types of defamation. There's libel and there's slander. And so libel is the written uh, the written word, and slander is the spoken word. And there's a bunch of uh, exemptions and and things that go on there and defenses and really it's the battle between uh, free speech and, and your charter right to say whatever you want but then also somebody's right to not be defamed or, or disparaged uh, unduly or, or unlawfully and so uh, it's it's the the fight between those two rights uh, and and the case law that's developed uh, based around that and so I won't get into the specifics but certainly if you feel that you've been defamed or somebody said something about you that isn't true and, it, and it's impacting your life then you should certainly seek counsel to, to assist with whether or not that is something Thing, um, that you should explore or whether or not uh, you have you have a right to damages. Um, one of the cases uh, you mentioned that it's called uh, Pritchard versus Finesse. It was a case I did right out of uh, articles and was, yeah, it was my first trial on my own that I ran by myself. And prior to that, I had juniored a number of trials. Um, but the the case was, was a difficult case in the sense that um, the person we were suing didn't actually say um, uh, all the words that we were wanting to, um, they, they sort of made some inferences, you know, they kind of left things out there. So the actual words stated, um, you know, you could draw inferences from them, but but they they weren't actually said by the person that we were suing. And so uh, what happened was it was on Facebook and the all of the... All of the friends, the Facebook friends uh, from from the defendant, uh, did say all those things. So they made those leaps uh, that we would expect. And so, so what I tried to do was uh, tried to hold the defendant liable for each of the other comments posted by other people, as if she had made them herself. Um, this was quite a novel uh, law and something that uh, hadn't really been advanced. But there was some precedent for it in the. Um, in like the news reportings and stuff. So news, newspaper articles, historically, if there's the editor in chief, they're responsible for all of the columns that are written by the reporters. And so historically what happened was the court had held the newspaper company liable or for, for columns written by the reporters uh, in defamation. And so I tried to akin this on the the sort of the social media platform to say, well, this Facebook page is essentially her column, her her her, her newspaper, um, and then each of the people writing there were reporters, and she had the power to delete them and not have them on there. Um, and uh, Justice Saunders agreed with me, and so uh, we created new law and, and established a way for people to hold uh, on social media, anyways, on on platforms like Facebook, um, where you have control over over all of the comments on there. Um, to hold them liable for all of the posts as if they posted them themselves. And so mm -hmm. they created a, a test for that. And so, yeah, it was quite a quite an interesting case. And I think that's why I got the, the media attention that it did, because it was one of the first uh, social media cases and, and established some new law on holding um, the, the owner of the site liable for other people's comments. Mm -hmm. You're watching The Luke Bryan Show.